Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage, right. Closed the state's last abortion provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. the Bible has application for every part of our lives. violate her views as a Southern Baptist. The problem is also not just the shift of position. In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Welcome to The Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I am Julie Roy's, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about what is admittedly a very sobering but important subject, euthanasia and assisted suicide. So what do you think about euthanasia or assisted suicide? Is this a humane way to usher those with terminal illnesses into the next life? Or is it simply a way to pressure those that we consider a burden to take their own life? Over the past 25 years, the move to legalize assisted suicide has accelerated rapidly. In 1997, Oregon became the first state to legalize euthanasia. Today, eight states in the District of Columbia have joined Oregon's ranks. A ninth state will be added in September when a new law goes into effect in Maine. Over the years, nearly 1,500 people in Oregon have died from ingesting drugs legally prescribed by a doctor. In the state of Washington, nearly 1,400 people have done the same. But that's nothing compared to the numbers of people euthanized worldwide. In the Netherlands, for example, where assisted suicide was first made legal, more than 6,000 people die by euthanasia and assisted suicide every single year. And just about a month ago, a 17-year-old Dutch rape victim who suffered from depression starved herself to death after requesting euthanasia. It's unclear if the doctors played any role in her death, though my guest today argues that it really doesn't matter. He writes... A teenager with a terrible psychiatric condition was allowed to make herself dead instead of receiving continued and robust treatment efforts. That's abandonment as surely as providing a lethal injection. This is where all assisted suicide or euthanasia legalization laws eventually lead. Once a society accepts killing as an acceptable way to eliminate human suffering, there is no limit as to the categories of suffering that will eventually justify eliminating the sufferer. Well, my guest today is Wesley J. Smith, one of the world's foremost critics of assisted suicide and utilitarian bioethics. Wesley is an author and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, and his Human Exceptionalism blog, which is hosted by National Review Online, is one of the premier blogs dealing with human life and dignity. His latest book is the newly updated and revised edition of Culture of Death, the Age of Do-Harm Medicine. So, Wesley, welcome to the Roy's Report. I'm so glad you could join me. Well, thank you for having me, and hello to your listeners. So, Wesley, you know, let's talk a little bit about this Dutch teenager who committed suicide. By all accounts, she didn't die by injection or prescribed drugs. I think it is a little bit unclear, but can you explain more why you feel that her suicide is actually the result of sort of this culture of death that assisted suicide and euthanasia contributes to. Oh, absolutely. I, I call that an abetted suicide. Uh, and, and this is what I mean. Um, starving oneself to death is known in euthanasia parlance as VSED, for voluntary stop eating and drinking. It is pushed by uh, 
euthanasia and assisted suicide groups uh, such as Compassion and Choices, which used to be more honestly named the Hemlock Society. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, in uh, the Compassion and Choices, they promote it aggressively and teach people how to do it uh, for elderly people who may not qualify for legal assisted suicide in states where it's legal, but are tired of life or just feel that their life is over and it's time to move on. So what happened is this uh, teenage woman, a uh, young woman, uh, or, or late, you know, teenager, mm-hmm. had been had been sexually molested when she was 11 and had been uh, gang raped by two men when she was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that caused a terrible upset in this poor thing, poor girl. And uh, she, but she had actually managed to, to make something positive out of it. She wrote a best-selling book, just as an example, uh, to show the vitality of her life force uh, that 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 tried to make something positive out of this awful experience, but she was suffering from depression, anorexia, PTSD, and so forth. And at the end, she asked for uh, the mental health uh, officials to provide her with electroshock therapy, which can help in treating depression. She was refused on the basis that she was too young. <laughs> So she then decided, I'm going to just starve myself to death, obviously having been told about this VSED situation. Now, in VSED, people don't just starve and dehydrate themselves to death, uh, generally, without a doctor's help because of the uh, the symptoms you would experience. If you don't eat, the pain and, and don't uh, take water, the pain and suffering can be quite intense. So what often happens is that a doctor will palliate those symptoms, give you uh, drugs to make so so that you don't feel them so well, that actually helps you then continue on with this suicide effort, which is suicide in slow motion. What I suspect happened, and I don't know, is that doctors in, in the Netherlands probably put her, may have, let's put it instead of probably may have, because there's an investigation ongoing, may have put her into an artificial coma to allow her to complete this uh, process of 10 days dehydration. That is a, a, a uh, something called terminal sedation. And terminal sedation isn't intended to just palliate symptoms. It is intended to make it so the person dies. And it must be distinguished, I hate to be, be but we have to be nuanced, from what is known as palliative sedation in a situation where someone is actively dying and perhaps they're suffering from uh, anxiety or uh, the, the pain is difficult to, to control, doctors, palliative experts, can put patients into a sedated state that can actually be titrated up and down. The point of that isn't to kill people. The point of that is to make it so that they live as fully as possible considering their circumstances. The point of terminal sedation isn't when somebody's dying, but is to make them so that they don't eat or drink. In fact, in the Netherlands, more people die by terminal sedation than die by active euthanasia. Hmm. Uh, To the point that, as in in an article I wrote a couple of years ago, it seems that about 24% of all Dutch deaths may be induced by doctors when you include euthanasia, assisted suicide, euthanasia being lethal injection, assisted suicide being lethal prescription, terminal sedation, and so forth. So I I think if we ever learn the full truth of what happened to this 17-year-old girl, we will find that doctors were certainly a part of her suicide by self-starvation and dehydration. This is, I mean, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around this. 
I mean, one, you have a girl who's 17 years old. She's not old enough to get the treatment that she so desires, but she is old Julie, enough she's not, to be she's killed. She's not old enough to consent to a tattoo. <sighs> I, it, it's just it's mind-boggling to me. And then you're telling me that 24% of deaths may be caused in the Netherlands to doctors? I mean, that that's that's like a complete violation of the Hippocratic Oath, right? It's to do no well, harm. Yeah, right, of course it is, and, and but doctors don't take the Hippocratic Oath anymore. And again, emphasizing 24% isn't the number of people lethally injected. Right. 24% includes people who might be sedated so that they uh, die over two weeks and this kind of thing. And in fact, there have been stories out of the Netherlands, the reason that doctors are turning uh, more frequently to terminal sedation is under the euthanasia law of the Netherlands, the doctors actually have to be present when the patient is killed. And that's what they're talking about. You, you know, euthanasia, you're killing the patient. You're giving them a lethal injection. Um, but in terminal sedation, the doctor doesn't have to be present. And there have been stories out of the Netherlands about how uh, anxiety-causing euthanasia is for the doctor, which one would expect and one would hope when you're killing people, that that would be something you'd never get used to. So when you include all of the types of induced death that can exist, mm. um, as I, and I'm speaking off the top of my head, but it was about 24%. Wow, wow. And this is supposed to be, I mean, this is what the advocates of assisted suicide and euthanasia say. They say this is the compassionate alternative, and yet we're seeing this being used to, to really create a society where, if you're not, you know, deemed uh, worthy of living, then we can encourage you, you know, maybe pressure you, maybe just not offer you the help that you need so that you're just going to usher, you know, into that next life. Not very compassionate, Wesley. Well, the Netherlands has always had a, a, a stunted uh, hospice sector and palliative care sector because they've been allowing euthanasia since the 70s. It was formally legalized in 2002, mm -hmm. but before that it was decriminalized so that if a doctor followed the supposed guidelines that are intended to protect against abuse, they would not be, and they reported it to the coroner, they would not be prosecuted. But I hope your listeners understand that these supposed guidelines to protect against abuse are just there to assuage people's fears. Hmm. They're really not designed to protect anyone. For example, in One this second. country, you Wesley, will hear... Wesley, we have to go to breaks. So I hate to cut you off, but we'll come back to it. Uh, we just have to take a short break again. Dr. Wesley Smith, a critic of assisted suicide and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, is joining me. Uh, when I come back, I'll have another guest for whom this subject is very personal. Stay tuned. We now return to the Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, euthanasia is increasingly becoming accepted around the world and here in the U.S. Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're talking about assisted suicide and euthanasia and the sanctity of human life. Our show today is recorded, so I can't take your calls. However, I encourage you, you can join the live conversation online by going to facebook.com slash reachjulieroy's, and Roy's is spelled R-O-Y-S, 
or to get to me on Twitter, use my handle at ReachJulieRoyce. Also, I want to let you know that today I'm giving away copies of Wesley Smith's most recent book, Culture of Death, The Age of Do Harm Medicine. This is a warning about the dangers of the modern bioethics movement. Great book, great resource. So if you'd like to enter to win that book, just go to JulieRoyce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. That's JulieRoyce.com slash giveaway. Again, joining me today is Wesley Smith, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Um, And I have another guest waiting to tell a really compelling story about how this has personally impacted her life. But Wesley, I wanted to give you a chance to sort of finish your thought that uh, you didn't get a chance to finish at the end of uh, the last segment about how these laws, uh, they're supposed to be about compassion. They're supposed to be a last resort uh, for suicide and euthanasia, yet that's really not how they're written, is it? That's correct. And uh, with regard to the 24% of Dutch deaths being induced, it's actually, as I added it up, 25%. Hmm. And if people want to see how I came to that uh, conclusion, they can go to National Review Online, the corner of my article of January 21st, 2019. It'll be easy to find if people are interested in how I determine that figure. In terms of, uh, I was going to get into domestic assisted suicide advocacy. Mm -hmm. It is always sold as an issue of the uh, to be a, a kind of a safety valve, a last resort to prevent an agonizing death when nothing else can be done to alleviate suffering. But that's not how the laws read at all. There is no objective requirement that there be nothing else done to that can be done to alleviate suffering. In fact, if there was, it would be a zero rate because there's always something that can be done to alleviate suffering, even if it means that palliative sedation that I discussed. So what happens is these laws say, as decided by the patient. So the patient may not have any actual symptoms at all, but if they have the diagnosis of a terminal uh, illness likely to cause death within six months, they're able to get the lethal prescription. So all of the advocacy you hear about uh, requiring suffering isn't true because the laws are not written to so require it. Hmm. Well, thank you for that distinction. That's really helpful. I want to introduce us now to to Kimberly Quo. Uh, She's someone I became familiar with um, because I heard her speak at a conference, and her her story was so compelling that I was like, man, I want people to hear this story of how, uh, through her experience, uh, her husband was David Quo. He was the former deputy director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives under President George W. Bush. Kimberly says watching her husband live his life to the fullest while suffering from this terminal illness uh, led her to advocate against assisted suicide. So, Kimberly, I am just thrilled to have you join me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much, Julie. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Yeah, well, so tell, I mean, I know your story, but our listeners have never heard about it. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about David and his terminal illness and how how that impacted your view of this issue. Sure. Well, I had no view of the issue, honestly, before uh, David and I's experience. So we were in Washington, D.C. many years ago, both of us working in politics. Uh, David was 34 years old when we were driving home from a big Washington party. He was working in the White House at the time, Mm -hmm. and he had a grand mal seizure while driving home. So if you don't know what that is, his eyes just rolled back in his head and his 
foot launched onto the gas pedal and we went flying out of control. And so at about four o'clock in the morning in the ER, we survived the car crash, thankfully, uh, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, glioblastoma. And that was the first time that he was given six months to live. As Wesley mentioned, that's about all it requires. At that moment, he could have been given uh, lethal drugs to kill himself, saying, you know what, you only have six months to live. It's going to be a terrible, uh, painful illness and way to die. And we uh, certainly didn't take that path, although about two two years after David actually died, uh, a woman named Brittany Maynard, who I'm sure you've heard of in sure. California, started this whole debate, was diagnosed with the exact same brain tumor and did set out to take the drug six months later. Um, thankfully, our story continued. David and I had only been married for three years at this point. And so uh, David had seizures. He had trouble walking uh, because his left side was impaired after that point. He ended up having five brain surgeries over um, the time. But about two years after David was given six months to live, mm-hmm. uh, we had our daughter, Olivia, mm-hmm. um, because we decided we were going to live. And that's a tough decision to make in these circumstances, but you really have to decide whether you're going to wait to die or you're going to live. And four years after David was given that six months, we had my son, Aiden. So (laughs) we uh, built a family and we lived and about, uh, as I mentioned, David had uh, two years of chemo after the kids were born. And about six years in, the tumor was growing again, and he was given six months to live again. Hmm. He had had radiation at this point. It looked on the MRIs like it had just blown up. They had several doctors look at it. Six months to live. And we decided to continue using the weapons at our disposal of <laughs> medicine and prayer and fasting and everything we could do. And then he, of course, lived another few years, nine years after his first six months diagnosis, he was given a third diagnosis of six months to live. So he ended up living about 10 years, which kind of proves what Wesley was saying. You know, we went through hospice, for example, um, for the last 10, 11 days of David's life. And I could tell you story after story of our friends and family who came, flew in across the country over the years of taking us to doctor's appointments and seeing miracles of David actually getting another year to live, another two years, another three years to live. We had people fasting for us around the world. Um, and the faith that was built in our community over this time was enormous, including the last 10 days of Aiden, of Aiden that's my son, of David's life um, when you know, some people would say, okay, we'll end it then because um, it's painful. Honestly, the hospice system in America, the last 10 or 11 days of David's life were some of the least painful, the least suffering. However, he continued to influence people incredibly. He was witnessing to his ICU resident and telling him to read Mere Christianity. In the last two weeks when he was in ICU, he challenged his oncologist to start a ministry for homeless cancer patients because in their discussions they realized homeless people don't have health care. How, how would a person with cancer be served? So she did so mm. after his death. And 
So uh, my message to people, first of all, is, you know, this whole debate is predicated on suffering and doctors trying to predict how long you can live um, or how long you can suffer and whatnot. And no doctor we ever talked to, which were the best doctors in the world, National Institutes for Health, Duke, UCLA, whatever, mm-hmm. none of them could predict with any degree of reliability, how long David would live, what his suffering would be like, any of those things. And the second thing that I found so interesting is Brittany Maynard, the poster child for this whole compassion and choices um, argument is that there was purpose in every day that David lived. He would speak to people, he would influence people, and there is no purposeless suffering. Mm-hmm. And and you are always have the opportunity to live fully and to influence other people. And so that's the short version of our story. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it more. But I, I never imagined even being in this debate until I heard um, some of the arguments uh, for this. And then, of course, as a caretaker who struggled for 10 years to take care of David, I can tell you that if you had a caretaker who was not, didn't have the best intentions or just couldn't do it anymore, it scares me greatly that caretakers can now make that decision for the patient. There's numerous examples where the patient has not given their own consent, Mm. but a caretaker who's just tired or a caretaker who might inherit money or something could make that decision for a patient. Wow. Well, we're going to have to go to break. When we come back, Kimberly, thank you so much for that story. But when we come back, let's talk about the laws in the United States. What is sort of on the front lines in this assisted suicide and euthanasia debate? Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. Joining me today, Kimberly Quo, also Wesley Smith. We will be right back after a short break. Former U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy is coming to the Chicago area this October for a special conversation at Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum. Learn how Kennedy, a diplomat and author and the eldest child of President John F. Kennedy, carries on her father's legacy of public service at this unique opportunity for the Chicagoland community. Get your tickets today for this lively conversation hosted by nationally syndicated radio host and commentator Eric Metaxas. The World Leaders Forum brings recognized world leaders to the region each year to inspire leadership for all who attend. Many great thinkers and leaders have keynoted this prominent event. You won't want to miss Caroline Kennedy this fall. Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum is October 8th, 7 p.m. at the Renaissance Schomburg Convention Center. Tickets start at $75 and are available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. Once again, tickets available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. Now, more of the Roy's Report. Once again, here's Julie Roy's. Welcome back to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're discussing euthanasia and assisted suicide. Is this something that we should support as a compassionate solution to suffering, or is it kind of a Trojan horse, which really ushers in this culture of death and justifies killing anyone that we deem a burden? 
Our show today is recorded, so I can't take your calls. However, I encourage you to join the conversation live online right now at facebook.com slash Reach Julie Royce, and Royce is spelled R-O-Y-S, or to get to me on Twitter, use my handle, at Reach Julie Royce. Also, I want to remind you that today I'm giving away copies of Wesley Smith's most recent book, Culture of Death, The Age of Do-Harm Medicine, which is a warning about the dangers of this modern bioethics movement. If you'd like to enter to win that book, just go to Julie Royce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, slash giveaway. That's Julie Royce, dot com, slash giveaway. Again, joining me today is Wesley Smith, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Also joining me is Kimberly Kuo, an outspoken advocate against assisted suicide and euthanasia. And uh, Wesley and Kimberly, I just looked this up recently, 2018 Gallup poll uh, found that 72% of Americans support euthanasia or assisted suicide. So the view that you bring to the table is becoming more and more a minority view in this country. Uh, Wesley, why don't you speak to what's happening with these laws and and kind of where the front lines is here in the United States when it comes to uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide? And maybe, can you distinguish, what's the difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia? Uh, as, as used in, uh, you know, this issue's parlance, uh, mm-hmm. assisted suicide is when a doctor gives you a lethal prescription so that you can take an overdose of pills to kill yourself. So the last act that causes death is taken by the person who dies. In euthanasia, uh, the, uh, as generally used, the uh, doctor um, administers a lethal injection. So the last act to cause death is from the doctor. <clears throat> so in, in Netherlands, Belgium, and Canada, just as three examples, mm-hmm. That permits euthanasia. They call it medical aid in dying because they love their euphemisms. They don't want people to think about what's really happening. Mm -hmm. But in those three countries, you have doctors literally killing people uh, with a lethal injection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always find it ironic that these are countries that are against the death penalty by lethal injection. Mm -hmm. Um, In Belgium and the Netherlands uh, and in Canada, uh, sometimes euthanasia is conjoined with organ harvesting. Uh, and so that a person who would not be dead except for being killed by a doctor will then have their organs harvested within minutes of, of uh, succumbing. Mm-hmm. In, the, in Belgium and the Netherlands, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it shows you once you decide there are killable people, then you decide there are exploitable people. Mm-hmm. So in Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, not yet in Canada, although there, it may happen someday, People who are euthanized are sometimes mentally ill. Uh, it is, does not require in any of those three countries a terminal illness, but in Canada, I'm sorry, in Belgium and the Netherlands, mentally ill people are euthanized. That is, people who are not physically ill are experiencing the terrible anguish of mental illness, go to a hospital, are killed, they're wheeled into a surgical suite, and their organs are harvested, and then these these uh, experiences have been written up in organ transplant medical journals without an ounce or an eye dot of criticism. It's just stunning to consider what we're doing. And in fact, in one of those cases, uh, one of the articles I looked it up, I read it extensively, I looked deep into the, into the heart of uh, you know, the, the data. You know what the person who was killed and, and harvested, you know what their mental illness was? Self-harming. So the, quote, treatment to self-harming was to be killed 
and then harvest it. I can't think of anything more cruel than letting people believe who are having a terrible time getting through the night that their deaths have greater value than their lives. Well, this is the slippery um, I, slope, I, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's once you, well, yes, you it's, let it in, it, this is where we had it. It's not just a slippery slope. What I'm discussing are facts on the ground. Yeah. And uh, this is not what I project will happen. It is what is happening today. Mm-hmm. And this happens not because the Dutch or the Belgians or the Canadians, and the Canadians are our closest cultural cousins. Mm-hmm. It's not because they're worse human beings than Americans. It's because, excuse me, they have accepted the premise that underlies euthanasia, that killing is, that we can eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. Mm-hmm. And once you accept that logical, that premise, logic will take mm-hmm. you to places uh, where we've gone. Some go slower than others. The United States is going much slower than the Netherlands did because there's still a robust uh, pushback here in this country. And by the way, one of the reasons why 72% of the people told Gallup that mm-hmm. is because they never hear the reasons for opposing it. The mm-hmm. media has gone all in on supporting assisted suicide. They turned uh, Brittany Maynard into a heroine mm-hmm. because she committed assisted suicide. CNN made her, named her one of the extraordinary people of, mm-hmm. I think it was 2015, because she killed herself. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yet, Let me... yet, yet Kimberly's husband didn't, didn't get the notice that, uh, she, that, Kim, that Brittany Maynard received, and there was another young woman named uh, Lauren Hill mm-hmm. who had the yeah. same illness. Um, she fought for life with dignity instead of, quote, death with dignity. Uh, and she got a little bit of notice in People magazine because she raised money for uh, for cancer research and continued to play basketball, college basketball. 189-page uh, word, I'm sorry, word obituary in People. Brittany Maynard got 1,000 words in People. Front cover. Yeah. Let, yes. let, me, let me throw this to Kimberly because I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this as well. I mean... We talked, you were, I had you on a radio show that I had on a different network a couple of years ago, you know, and we talked about that, you know, since we've talked about this issue, New Jersey has passed assisted suicide yeah. law, Maine just passed it, it's going to go yeah. into effect in September. Are you surprised to see how rapidly this is beginning? I mean, like you said, Wesley, it's a little bit slower than in Europe, but are you surprised to see how it's getting root here in the United States? Not really, because as I said, I'd never thought about it. And when you talk to people about it, it's not sort of a happy issue. It's not like cutting your taxes. <laughs> and the the arguments against it are complex. So I raise very simple, I try to raise simple things to people like someone has to decide who's going to die. And basically the governments are deciding who can die now. Is that is that a good thing? Um, you know, people just don't think through that. And certainly, I, I believe Christians don't, because it's the exact argument that they use for abortion. The language is pro-choice. It's about women's health and freedom and doing what you want. But very similar mirrored issues. No one talks about the fact, to, to add on to what Wesley was saying about organ har- harvesting, insurance companies have huge monetary incentives not to treat cancer, but mm. to give people $50 worth of lethal drugs. And I'm a political person. So if you look at the California law, what that did was help them fill a a $60 million hole in health care for poor people. All right. Pause on that. We need to go to break when we come back. I love that you brought up, uh, Kimberly, you know, as Christians, how should we think about this? 
You know, the arguments were abortion, very similar. We're going to talk about that when we come back from break. Again, you're listening to The Roy's Report. We will be right back after a short break. This is The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. Well, is euthanasia the answer to chronic suffering or simply a means of ushering in a culture of death? Welcome back to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're tackling this difficult topic of euthanasia and assisted suicide. As you may know, assisted suicide is legal now in eight states and the District of Columbia. In September, it will be legal in nine states when a new law goes into effect in Maine. Here in Illinois, assisted suicide is not legal. However, in Illinois, it is legal to withhold food and fluids from a patient who is not dying otherwise. And now that Democrats have a supermajority, I just wonder if this is going to be another push here in this state to do something that is absolutely shocking. So we'll be uh, jumping back into that discussion in just a second, but I do want to let you know that next week, we're going to be talking about just an incredible move of God that's going on right now in Iran. Uh, Joining me will be Joel Richardson, a New York Times bestselling author and filmmaker, and an internationally recognized expert on biblical prophecy in Islam. Joel has just produced a film on Iran telling the story of how the Iranian regime is actually losing control of the Iranian people. And it's in large part due to this sweeping movement, interestingly, of women who are following Jesus as their Messiah. I'm so excited about the show and to have Joel, who will be getting back uh, from the Middle East shortly before uh, the program and can report to this, seeing this firsthand, what's going on there. So uh, I really hope you'll make a point to join me next week uh, as I talk to Joel Richardson about that. But returning to our topic today, again, joining me is Wesley J. Smith of the Discovery Institute and Kimberly Kuo, an advocate against euthanasia. And, And Kimberly, I know for you, Scripture played this huge role in what you said. You know, initially you didn't really have a view on euthanasia and assisted Mm. suicide. But as you and your husband walked through his terminal illness, you really relied on Scripture, and God began to speak to you through it. So tell me how Scripture informed your view of this topic. Well, let me run through a couple of things on that. First of all, just searching the character of God. So I, we definitely leaned on specific verses, but I would challenge everybody to understand the character of God, because mm-hmm. I think sometimes you can pull specific verses out of context. But one of the ones I always use in explaining the issue is Job 2 is the first time uh, assisted suicide that I could find was mentioned, and that's when Job had already lost his family, he'd lost his herds, and his wife came to him and says, you know what? Give up. Just die. Now you're afflicted physically, and there's something especially hard about that, so just curse God and die. Mm. And what Job says to her is, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. You know, we can do this. God gives us good. God will carry us through this. Um, So that's the first thing I would say. And then if you jump to Job 28, when God finally fires back, you know what? Where were you when? And he goes through the, where were you when I hung the stars? Right? We have to trust in a God that Isaiah said is far above our ways. Mm. If he gave us breath, there is purpose in the breath. If he gives you a breath today, it means you can live with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly 1 Corinthians six nineteen, where he says, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are bought with a price. Mm-hmm. Honor God with your bodies. To me, that doesn't mean until we feel like 
we can't anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, David's body was broken. He lost his ability to walk. He, he lost his ability to turn over in a bed. Mm-hmm. And he still honored God as much as he could in every way that he could. And so I don't think that charge to us to honor God with our bodies ends. I don't, I think, you know, Julie, I mentioned this in the conference, I get asked a lot, um, it's Catholic view that, you know, suicide in any way, shape or form is a, is a, just a, a, you know, an unforgivable sin. But to me, it's the original sin to say, you know what, I will, I will handle this, that, and the other. But man, when it comes to suffering physically and dying, I'm taken over. God must have made a mistake. I'm going to control this, right? I, mm. I'm not going to honor God anymore. I'm just going to control this whole thing. And I think that's a fundamental, you know, unfaithful position. Uh, if we believe God is a good father and perfect in all of his ways, then he's perfect in all of our his ways, and we have to submit to that. Mm. And our suffering happens under his sovereignty. And I think, you know, interestingly, we follow a Savior who endured suffering to the end, who who said, you know, I want Father take this cup from me. And yet, right, he didn't, he didn't bow out at that point. He said, okay, this is legitimate suffering. This is redemptive suffering. I'm going to do it in faithfulness to the Father. And so what an example Jesus gave us. Um, exactly. And he says, in the end, I will honor you, God. Mm-hmm. Right? I right. see what suffering is coming before me. And I hate it. I want, I mean, please no, but in the end, not me, but you, God, I will honor you no matter what. Amen. It's such, uh, it's so powerful, the example of Christ. And it helps us, you know, as we face these things. Wesley, you were saying, as we were talking in the break, that this issue, you know, a lot of us think, well, okay, so when our state is, is going to, you know, if there's a law that we're going to be considering, then we'll think about this issue. You're saying this could hit you very personally. You need to think about it now and think about what you're going to do. Tell me about that. Right. And, and I would also point out, based on what Kimberly said, compassion, the root meaning is to suffer with. Hmm. Uh, uh, assisted suicide isn't suffering with anybody. It's discarding. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and it certainly does not reflect. And the Hippocratic Oath, 500 years before Christ, understood that. It prohibits doctors from participation. But I want your listeners to uh, consider uh, they think they may think, well, this will never affect me. It will only happen if I, if I get sick or somebody in my life gets sick, and I, and I won't have to think about it otherwise. I don't think that's true. You see in the media today a lot of promotion of what are called suicide parties. That is, people who are going to commit assisted suicide or euthanasia, for example, in Canada, have a party which culminates either at the end of the party with the killing yeah. or... Uh, the party ends, and then the person commits assisted suicide. It is being normalized in the popular culture. And and your listeners could receive a call one day from, let's say, Sister Sue. Sister Sue calls and says, you know, Grandma has cancer. She's expected to die within six months. Um, But she's decided it's next Tuesday. She wants you to come. She wants you to be here when she takes the pills. What do you do? If you say yes, you are complicit in grandma's suicide you are validating grandma that she will that she perhaps is a burden maybe her fear is she's a burden or she's worried that she will be loved less Mm. 
if people see her go through the decline that it, that can be experienced in a terminal illness. Brittany Maynard said that one of her two reasons for committing assisted suicide was she didn't want her family to have the bad memory of her going through the decline caused mm-hmm. by the brain cancer. In other words, she put herself out of her family's misery. This is really frightening. So if you say yes, you're, you're complicit, you're validating, and it may be the thing that pushes grandma over the final edge. Well, I guess if my family says I should do it, I should do it, right? Hmm. But if you say no, you could end up losing your family. For example, you say no. Sister Sue says, how dare you impose your Christianity on grandma on us? If you don't come and if you're not part of her, she helped put you through college, you're out of the family. And don't think that won't happen. Christians are now facing increasing persecution for being faithful to, uh, to their faith. Doctors are actually in Canada being forced to choose between euthanizing patients or getting out of health care. Uh, a court ruled in Ontario, Canada, that a Christian doctor who refuses to euthanize and refuses to procure a euthanasia doctor who will euthanize can actually face professional discipline because of that decision not to kill. So, so there's going to be a, uh, any, anybody, any one of your listeners could end up facing the situation. And I think pastors, if you have pastors listening to your show, they need to bone up on this so that if somebody comes into their study and says, Pastor, I've got a problem, uh, you know, they want me to come out and participate in, an, in a suicide party, the pastors need to be able to counsel those, uh, those parishioners in order to do what's right, both by grandma and by the parishioner. Hmm. Kimberly, I'm curious, in your advocacy, have you talked to many pastors? And, you know, if so, how do they respond about getting involved on this issue and speaking out about it? Almost all said to me, even at the conference I was at, uh, where you attended, Julie, is, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, I never thought about this. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens in these social issues. You know, the, and, and I hate to say this, but it is, you know, uh, several Republican governors and legislatures defeated these, and then a Democrat came in, and they were approved. So this is more of a liberal agenda item. They're organized. Absolutely. They are pushing this, and we're just not even paying attention. And so uh, almost all of them have either asked me to to come speak or what do we say or their resources. Nobody is thinking about this. I'm thrilled to read Wesley's book, but even among my friends, no churches or pastors are are talking about this at all. Um, And if I could just play on one thing he said there Mm -hmm. about the word compassion, one thing I always bring up for Christians to look at Look at Mother Teresa. She's like this icon of compassion. Even the Pope said, you know, this assisted suicide is misdirected compassion. Let's own what compassion is. She's not killing off people suffering in Calcutta. She's comforting them, staying with them, loving with them. And people like that, they understand that that's good, well, then that's the model we should be following, right? We need to understand and claim what compassion is because David and I experienced compassion. We experienced the body of Christ, and it was certainly not anyone sleeping in a hospital bedroom with us saying, you know what, just get this over with, end this. It was someone sitting there, you know, bringing supplies or holding his hand. I once stayed up for 36 hours, clicking a morphine uh, clicker every five minutes Hmm. to keep his pain under control, right? That's compassion. And it changes you, doesn't it? Oh, It changes you as you... And everyone around you, yes. 
the character that's that's formed in us, I think, as we walk with people in their suffering, it, it develops something in us. And yet I think we don't want to suffer, even though <laughs> as Christians, we know part of being a Christian is taking up your cross, following Christ, imitating him, you know, following his example. And and yet we want to just sort of get out of that process. And, and who likes suffering? I mean, it's tough. It's really, really tough. It's even well, tough our obligation is obligation is to, if people weren't suffering how would anybody ever provide the the uh the the sucker that people do you know when you're when you're receiving care you're allowing other people to plant seeds of love hmm. if if nobody was willing to receive care how would those seeds of love ever be planted and if you take a look back at the early church, why why did the church become popular among the poor? Because the, right. because the people of the early church picked up the children that were exposed on hills, took care of the elderly who were being abandoned, and so forth. So when you show that, uh, I'll bet that the uh, the incredible love you gave your husband, Kimberly, touched more people than you will ever know on this side yeah. of, of, of mm. eternity. Yeah. Uh, because people, you know, when people claim to be Christians, I'm a little stepping outside my parameter here, mm-hmm. but people watch to see how you mm-hmm. act. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Hey, and, I, and I hate to do attention. this, we're, just, we're running out of time. I'm going to have to bring this to a close. But Wesley, I so appreciate what you said. And Kimberly, I so appreciate what you said. And I'd love to have you both back and talk about this again sometimes. I feel like it's much larger than, than we're able to deal with in this time. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Wesley. People are watching us. And I think it's very clear in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. The right to life and to death is God's. That's not just my view. That's Scripture's view. Thanks so much for joining me for the Roy's Report. Have a great weekend. And God bless.